uh, these ideologies, I mean, the, there's nothing that they don't touch. They want to deconstruct everything, not just Christianity or any sect of Christianity, but the whole world. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. I couldn't be more excited about my guest today. Tom Ascole has served as the pastor of Grace Baptist Church since 1986. He has a BS degree in sociology from Texas A&M University and has also earned his MDiv. I love that too, earned, because you have to put that anymore <laughs> in bios. Uh, I earned my master's degree as well, but you earned your MDiv and PhD degrees from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Tom is the president, and found, uh, is the president of Founders Ministry the Institute for Public Theology, and he is the host of Sword in the Trowel. And he's also the author from the Protestant Reformation to the Southern Baptist Convention and Traditional Theology and the SBC, and a recent book he just co-authored with Jared Longshore, The Strong and Courageous. Tom, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, Reed, it's an honor to be with you. I look forward to this. Yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun, uh, I, I know, for me, because ever since I saw the documentary, and I'm going to link that down in the show notes, uh, by what standard, I've just been absolutely captivated with what is going on with the Southern Baptist Convention. By the way, for audience members who hear SBC throughout, that's referencing Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, what's going on there, but then also, too, your voice and the voice of Vody, who you know, I know you're very close with, um, Vody Bauckham, um, and just what you guys are doing for the kingdom right now, I don't think needs to be overlooked or, uh, too, too, too quickly. So I'm, I'm really thankful for you to be able to come on to kind of share what's going on over at the SBC, but then maybe just to share kind of writ large what's going on with Christianity and uh, and some of the kind of things that we're hearing talked about in in probably in places where we didn't expect to hear it, quite frankly. So uh, so I'm really, really grateful for your contribution to um, to the body of Christ and all of that. But before we jump into it, um, I always like to try to start off on kind of a light note. So 10 kids, did you not have a, have a TV or did you just really, really think that it was up to you to multiply and replenish? Yeah, well, you know, uh, you got to, that's a little bit of a, uh tricky math there. I actually have six that were born into our family, and then four of those have married. Okay. Uh, so you've got 10 that way, but I've got another, uh, my youngest daughter is scheduled to be married in December, and so we have, uh, that, that'll make, uh, I guess, 11 at that score, and we've got 14 grandkids with another one on the way. So, wow. Uh, well, congratulations. That's, that's awesome. Life. So so you, you fared uh, a little bit lesser on the math there, but still... Uh, Good, good Christian heart to include your your in laws, your son in laws, daughters in laws, what, whatever they may be, into that equation. All right, so what in God's name is going on with the SBC? Well, sadly, not enough in God's name is yeah. going on. <laughs> uh, there's a lot that is going on in the SBC that is uh, 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 not honoring to God, and that's a tragedy. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination uh, in the United States, maybe the world. I can't yeah. recall exactly on that, but it's big and 15 million members or so we claim can't find a lot of them, but nearly 50,000 churches that dot the landscape across North America. And it has been a tremendous force for good. When you take both the uh, North American mission board, uh, 
yep. <clears throat> workers and the International Mission Board workers. It consists that that comprise that brings together the largest mission force in the world today yeah. for evangelical Christianity. So the SBC uh, has a ton of potential for good. And whenever it's in the hands of leadership and churches that are pursuing that good, many good things have happened. And we've seen that for the last generation and in earlier generations as well. Uh, let, let me just do a little bit of a background. I don't yeah. want to bore your listeners, but if you don't understand the history, then some of these things that are happening today will be less clear. But the SBC was started in 1845 as not really a denomination, but a convention of churches, an association of churches that came together to uh, cooperate for things like theological education and mission. And so they were very committed to international missions and then domestic missions uh, after that and theological education and different things began to be added to that. But from 1845 to probably the middle of the 20th century, uh, they were pretty uh, strong evangelical yeah, absolutely. and even reformed evangelical prior to like the 1925, 30 years or so. Uh, all of the churches were largely Calvinistic, but that began to branch out to not be the case in the first half of the 20th century, but they were still very conservative. And if, if you know your American Christian history very much, those were the years when modernism was beginning to infiltrate the mainline denominations. And so you have Presbyterian Church, Methodist Church, uh, the Anglicans, and they, they all began to go liberal through evolutionary theory and higher criticism that came over from Germany. Mm -hmm. Southern Baptists missed that largely because we were sectarian. And so we were kind of isolated from a lot of those larger evangelical conversations. But over the course of the 20th century, in the 40s, especially the 50s, and then the 60s, pragmatism took us over, and that pragmatism opened the door to liberalism. And so by the time you get to the 70s, we began to see we had a lot of problems in the SBC as well. Our right. seminaries, colleges, man, some things were being taught that were just horrific. The What is now the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC actually advocated for Roe versus Wade in uh, the uh, wow. early 70s. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, we were on record saying that we think abortion, you know, though it's, it's a sad thing, it shouldn't, we shouldn't celebrate. Nevertheless, it's right that women should have access to abortion. Yeah. So that's what the Southern Baptist Convention was. In 1979, there was a concerted effort that began officially to try to recover the SBC from this progressive liberal drift. And by God's grace, over the next 15 years, that happened. And so we look back on that, talk about the conservative resurgence that continued on to the mid-1990s, when all of our seminaries, all of our agencies began to be led by men who said, no, 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 the Bible is inerrant. We're not giving up on this. Jesus Christ really is divine. He really did die a real death. He really did come back bodily yep. from the dead. He really is going to return literally. All of those kind of core doctrines. And we'll praise God for that. So we went from the mid-90s into the maybe early 2000s to 2010, 2015, with this sense of almost euphoria. But yes, praise God, look what's at, what he's done in the recovery mm -hmm. of evangelical commitments in the SBC. But what we didn't realize is though we recovered the inerrancy of scripture, we really didn't drill down and recover the sufficiency of scripture. And so pragmatism that has been the death knell of Southern Baptist churches and institutions continued to live on. And now we've got a bunch of inerrantists who say, we've signed all the documents, 
But when you start drilling down below what they're doing, why they're doing it, you see it's the same old pragmatism. Yeah. In my estimation, pragmatism that's wed to cowardice that has uh, caused many of our leaders to be derelict in their duty. So now we've got all kind of ideologies like critical race theory that we've heard so much about the last two years that uh, are being taught by people in various institutions, tolerated by others who don't officially teach it. Yep. And even some who say they repudiate it still teach the core concepts of it. Uh, you've got feminism that is beginning to rear its head. And now there's kind of a soft complementarianism that people are saying we ought to advocate, which is really nothing but egalitarianism. Yeah. Uh, it's just sad. It's tragic to me to see this happening in some of the places that 10 years ago were trusted that you felt like, oh, yeah, you know, these are yeah. these are led by good people we can trust. Yeah. So I, I want to say something about that, too. I just had and I don't know if you're familiar with her at all. I just had Noelle Meering on the show, and she is a Catholic author and theologian, absolutely brilliant. And she uh, just wrote a book called Awake, Not Woke, uh, a, a, guy, a Christian Guide to the Progressive Movement. Um, and anyway, in the conversation, I, I told her that in some ways, I think back in 2010, 2012, uh, when I was going through my graduate program, I should have maybe been a little bit more alert to the fact that some of the Marxist ideology that was being uh, proposed to me from a theological perspective, which just like those two things, if you know them, like really just like <laughs> are so contrary to each other that it almost seems ridiculous to even say that. But I was, but I was being taught, like we literally had like, uh, these seminars on theology and communism and how the two are wed. Um, wow. and I, and it should have been a canary in the coal mine to me. And I think in a much larger way, certainly because of the reputation, but probably in a, in a much realer way beyond the reputation, I would say, in a grassroots way, um, there's a canary in the coal mine with what is happening at the SBC, because for those who don't know, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, has well been reputed as a uh, strong inerrancy of Scripture movement, where it's a Christocentric and and Scripture-centric, sola scriptura movement. Um, and for those who don't know what that means, just essentially people in the Southern Baptist movement, by and large, have believed that, that, that Christian Scripture was the only source of authoritative doctrine, that that is where we should uh, invite the movement of Christianity and where we should develop our doctrine. And so now that we're seeing some of the things that are happening in the SBC, I can't help but wonder if it is not a really great indication of what is going on maybe um, on a macro level in the culture, but also too maybe a symptom of something that's really, really, uh, really gone wrong in the in the church. I'd like to dig down a little bit that into that with you, but before I just want to step back and just ask this question because you're laying a lot of what is taking place with the introduction of feminism, uh, maybe even radical feminism, the introduction of critical race theory and stuff into Christianity. Um, Marxist ideologies into right. Christianity. You're laying at that at the foot of a pragmatism. Would you, and I know you've studied this a lot, so I know this is kind of a loaded question, but I'm just curious, would you, would you put the uh, pragmatism kind of at the foundation, or would you put the progressive movement at the foundation of much of what we're seeing right now? Because I'm just, I'm really constantly thinking, praying, and, and wondering what is the cause, the root cause of what's going on in society, but 
most importantly and the thing that I care the most about in, in the church. So what do you think that root cause is? Yeah, well, I, I think at bottom, <laughs> there, there's a, our problem is with God. Yeah. I mean, kind of joked at the beginning, but I really do think that's it. There's a lack of fear of God among so many who call themselves Christians today. And though we give lip service to and tip our hats to the word of God, the scriptures. And as you said, we all claim to be inerrantists. I mean, no self-respecting evangelical would dare suggest otherwise today. We've got to open up that inerrant Bible and deal with the actual words and take those words seriously. And when we do, uh, we need to be shocked again into a biblical reality yeah, just of the world. I just, I think even so many Christians, even in good churches, um, you know, we, we need to continue to emphasize this. We're, we're our elders in this, our church where I serve, we're more and more seeing this when trials come, difficulties come in life or in the church, sometimes good faithful Christians can be shocked and think, Oh no, Oh no, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Well, if we read our Bibles, we shouldn't be shocked when there's problems in a church. You know, I mean, I I remember when I was a kid, I've told this story recently to some of our members. Uh, when I was younger, God called me to pastoral ministry. I had never pastored church and I'd never really seen a church like the kind of church I hope to pastor one day. And I kept using this language as, oh, if God would just let me pastor a New Testament church, I just want to be a part of a real yeah. New Testament church who really does it right, you know? And yeah. uh, then I read the New Testament and I was blown away. <laughs> you know, what a minute. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to pastor the church at court, you yeah. know, <laughs> or, or Laodicea. So uh, we need a biblical realism. And and by that, I'm, I'm talking about Matthew chapter seven, verses 23 through 25, where Jesus speaks the most haunting words, I yeah. believe, that ever crossed his lips, not uh, there, there will be many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, that I will cast away. You know, not everybody who says that to me is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who say, uh, th those who do the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we do mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. Yeah. Now, we're, he's not talking about people that are just bums out on the street that curse God. Yeah. He's talking about church people. Yeah. He's talking about people that say, Lord, Lord, look how hard we worked in your name. Well, that kind of biblical reality ought to set us back on our heels to say, wait a minute. Could it be that we're playing games here? Could it be that despite all of our trappings, all of our things that the world acclaims about us, we claim for ourselves? Could it be that in the midst of all that, we have really missed Jesus Christ? Yeah, I want to I say something about that, because I, st I still kind of question, like, where all this is coming from? Where did we—I see this a lot lately, especially with pastors around my age group and a little bit younger than me, which would be millennial and younger— um, is that we've replaced true Christian compassion with sentimentality, that right. that the younger church is absolutely given over to emotional ideologies without—and maybe this is too painting too broadly, but very often, I'll say just to be safe— uh, given over to emotional ideologies that that possess people outside of scriptural truth. Now, I, I'm not going to name names because I, I, don't, I don't think that um, we have time, quite frankly, to name all the names. But but there are people in the Christian church who um, we looked at as pillars of doctrinal f fidelity. 
mm. who right now are really just surprising me with how they are too... I mean, pastors who are getting up and saying the real problem with the church today is whiteness. And you just think to yourself, like a, Chris, a, a, a westernized white Christological, Christological lens that we're looking at things through. And I'm just thinking to myself, really? Because like the scripture paints a different picture of what's actually wrong with the church that we might want to like give some consideration to. So I'm, I'm still just kind of curious about what's what's by, beyond that now and and I'll at the end I want to I want to ask a question that I think would be really really fascinating um, to kind of dig a little bit deeper than that but let's paint the picture using the documentary to kind of describe kind of what we see as the ailments or some of the things that are going on in in the culture so um, so you did back in 2019 you did a documentary called by what standard mm-hmm. uh, and the documentary is essentially about the the general meeting, the general assembly, the committee meeting of the Southern Baptists that meet every, their annual meeting that meets every single year where they discuss polity, ecclesiology, um, and then they even elect uh, leaders for, uh, for the movement. It was there that you fortunately uh, had uh, some footage and in, in a documentary going on about what was taking place in um in, in the SBC, and it was there that a resolution cropped up, Resolution 9, that, uh, that imposed that the uh, seminaries and perhaps even the churches, correct me if I'm wrong there, but um, would start teaching critical race theory as part of their curriculum and as a major part of—and uh, maybe major is not the right word, but at least start teaching critical race theory. Um, so— I guess the first question there is we'll dig into the critical race theory part of it and then also to the other aspect of the film uh, that you start with. But what was the genesis for the documentary? Yeah, well, it's a great question. Let me let me clear up one thing about Resolution 9. They, they, it wasn't really advocating that these things need to be taught now. I think it was providing cover for the fact that they were being taught. Uh, okay. uh, resolution yeah. says these are good useful analytical tools and so that's the language that was used in the resolution and again it was already going on i think the resolution was an attempt to try to provide cover to, for or where to streamline it maybe yeah to, yeah to make it acceptable so yeah the genesis of this uh, documentary is really uh, fascinating <clears throat> we didn't decide to attempt to do a documentary until i think it was 10 days before the southern Baptist convention and the way it came together is, is, is very providential now looking back on it. But in, uh, I think it was 1993 or four, somewhere around in there, PBS, uh, Public Broadcasting System, did a documentary on Southern Seminary. It was after Al Mohler had been named president in 93, I think it was. So this may have been 94, 95. And it's called The Battle for the Mines. Battle for the Mines. You can find it online now. In 2019, they released it on YouTube. Now, I'd seen it when it first came out on PBS, but you couldn't just watch it anywhere until 2019. So in the spring of 2019, they released it on YouTube, and I went back and watched it, and in watching it, and then some people who are not Southern Baptists watched it, one friend in particular who watched it and started texting me, said, have you seen this? Have you seen this? I said, well, yeah, I just watched it. I started watching it again, and it was fascinating because this was written, or this documentary was done by a progressive uh, Baptist whose mother had aspired to be a Southern Baptist pastor and maybe even had gone to Southern, I can't remember, but because of Al Mohler, basically they were saying she was no longer going to be allowed 
to be a pastor in the SBC because Al Mohler and the folks with him had shut down that lane, that avenue. And so this was kind of a lament. Look how bad Al Mohler is. Look how bad these fundamentalists are that are taking over the SBC. But as I watched the that documentary, it was fascinating to me to see that the progressives in 19 mid 1990s that the PBS is celebrating sounded so much like some of our conservatives in 2019, hmm. some of the same language. And so it was it was mind boggling. So 10 days before the Sunday night before the next week, that following Tuesday, not the immediate Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, when the SBC was going to meet in Birmingham, Alabama, we decided, hey, why don't we do a documentary, kind of an update on Battle for the Minds? So I called the friends that I have that are in the SBC and leadership, seminary presidents and others, and said, hey, here's what we want to do. We want to do an update on Battle for the Minds. Where are we now 25 years later? And uh, they all saw, oh, that sounds great. You know, we, we will, uh, yeah, you can interview me. And, and so I had people in interviews lined up and that's what we were going to do until the second day of the convention, Wednesday, I get a text from Al Mohler saying, have you, uh, you, you read resolution nine that just was printed that morning in the daily bulletin. He said, are you going to amend it? Well, I hadn't read it. I didn't know about it, but I read it. Oh, this is, wow. this is a disaster. <laughs> this yeah. resolution is bad. And so I, I texted Al back. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll amend it. If you'll speak to it, will you speak to it? If I amend it? And he said, if I can, I will. So that's how that began. So I read it and got some guys together and we started working on amendments and back and forth and finally came up with what we thought were some friendly amendments that were not so detailed that messengers couldn't follow. And we were going to propose that the resolution be amended in a way that would take some of the more uh, onerous aspects out of it. So I, I wrote it up, typed it up, sent it to the platform of the SBC. So the resolution committee had it. The president had it not trying to sucker punch anybody. You know, I was like, Hey, we want to do this. And uh, then they waited until the last 15 minutes of the convention to bring this resolution out. And they tried to bundle it with yeah. four, three or four other uh, resolutions so that we voted all, on them all at once. Yeah, for and that was a disaster. So it was in those last fifteen minutes that the whole trajectory of the documentary changed. And and let me just explain to you real quick for the audience. So um, you're going through obviously these com- these kind of things can last a long time, right? And you're going through these resolutions where people's eyes are glazing over. And so they get to resolution nine. There's thirteen total, and they say, mm-hmm. "Hey, for the sake of time, let's just bundle these last ones all together." However, resolution nine is an incredibly loaded resolution compared to everything else that they've been doing prior to. And so they tried to all vote on those things, what they say is as a block, which means they're voting on 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, all together as though they are the same. So, yeah, keep going. Yeah, you know, which was it was crazy. And, they, you know, I mean, I, I will leave motivations to God. I've had people tell me, well, you know they were doing that for nefarious reasons. I wrote an article right after that saying mm-hmm. I'm not judging them on their motives. And they said, well, of course you have to. Well, I don't know. God knows. But when the lady from the resolutions committee stood to the microphone to read resolution nine or to recommend it to the convention, she said, here we go. (laughs) I mean, so they'd had some conversations about this is going to be hot. And again, I'd already sent them uh, my proposed amendments and it had been all over social media. This was being debated on social media all that day. So yeah, it seems to me at best disingenuous 
mm-hmm. that they attempted to do that. And there were at least three, maybe four seminary professors on that committee. The chairman was uh, a professor at that time at Southern Seminary, Curtis Woods. And so these guys knew what they were doing. And uh, I just didn't appreciate it. And the my amendment pa- or failed. And then the resolution passed. The amendment had to have, I think, two thirds uh, to pass. And it didn't meet that threshold. And then the resolution passed. But I've had countless people tell me yeah. since then, we didn't know what we were voting on. We just trusted yeah. the platform, which is typical in well, that setting. Well, here's the thing. Let me read this real quick, because here's for the actual resolution language. Um, and this is uh, the second whereas. And it says, whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. And intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. Okay, so it goes on and on and on. I'll even link the full resolution so people can see it in the show notes. Um, But here's, I think, here's the rub for so many Christians today, is that they read that second whereas, and if you are not aware of the intricacies of critical race theory or intersectionality, you say, well, it's just a set of analytical tools, blah, 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 blah. You read the language and then you think to yourself, okay, fine, right? We got to teach our kids, uh, you know, about these things. They exist, whatever. Um, And so most people, and I would say most well-meaning Christians, just say okay to these kind of things, but they do not stop to take the time to actually think about the implications of what's being said. And this is where I think James Lindsay comes into play and where, and this is a guy who is an atheist and not a Christian and has called critical race theory and intersectionality Trojan horses, that they're pretty on the outside, but on the inside is something incredibly deadly. And this is where I'm not going to question motives either, but I'm just going to suggest that, um, that I think the language to try to pretty up critical race theory as something that should be an analytical tool even seems very intentional to me and seems meant to obscure what critical race theory actually does and what it actually leads people to. So um, this is going to be a loaded question, so let me set it up just a little bit because because this is going to take some nuance here. Um, And we won't try to dig too, too deep into it because I think we can get lost in the weeds, but I do think this is important because I want to ask you why we think critical race theory is illegitimately an analytical tool, why it should not be used by Christians. And here's my thoughts on it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. My thoughts are this, is that you've got Thomas Aquinas and he comes along and he uses an analytical tool. He uses Greek reason, uh, specifically Aristotle. And he says, this can help us Christians get back to reason. It can even help reconcile kind of the the fraying of science and the faith. And he says, we can use this to help us understand the nature of God and to understand scripture better. On the other hand, you have critical race theory, which is supposedly an analytical tool, but it actually doesn't at all help us do anything theological. It's more anthropological in nature. And then I think some people, so it helps you study human beings, right? It doesn't, even at face value, it's not theological in nature whatsoever. Um, It helps you study humanity. Um, And so some people would even stop there and say, okay, well, you know, anthropology is a good study. However, when you put it within the context of Christianity, it 
It provides an anti-gospel, anti-biblical view of anthropology. It looks at people merely through power dynamics and through zero-sum games as though we're all pawns in, um, in this fight against each other for, for power. It puts people in racially essentialistic categories like oppressor and oppressed. And so it really espouses um, a direct opposite view of humanity to the Imago Dei. People are intrinsically valuable. They're made in the image of God. And so I think for both of those reasons, you cannot consider critical race theory an analytical tool. Should you understand it? Yes. Why? Explicitly, and this is what your amendment to the resolution essentially alluded to, it should be taught merely for the purposes of fighting against it. And I think that that should be explicit in our seminaries. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on on why you don't think Christians should abide by the tenets of critical race theory. Last thing I'll just throw in there too is that, again, many of the people I went to seminary with, many of the people I went to graduate school with are now full-on critical race theory theologians. They have bought into this ideology hook, line, and sinker, and it's absolutely disturbed me from its inception. So why do you think we should avoid it as dangerous? Yeah, well, let, let me ask you first, Reed, uh, where'd you go to school? So I, <laughs> I, I went, uh, and by the way, this is why I say the SBC should be a canary in the coal mine, because I went to a Pentecostal um, uh, school. I went to Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee for, with the Church of God. Um, and we have always looked at the SBC of, as pillars of biblical truth. And whereas I think the SBC has sometimes looked at Pentecostals, maybe not so much as. Um, but... Uh, but uh, but yeah, but that's where I went to school. Okay, yeah, but I mean, and it it illustrates a point that uh, these ideologies. I mean, the, the, there's nothing that they don't touch. They want to deconstruct everything, yeah. not just Christianity or any sect of Christianity, but the whole world. So knitting clubs, biking clubs, mosques, all of these entities are being. Uh, eroded by these ideologies. And so that that's just a, a fact that I think your listeners ought to key in on For sure. as well. But why is it incompatible with the gospel? Well, as you said, uh, the Imago Dei, I, I think there are three areas of biblical understanding of humanity that get completely eroded by critical race theory and intersectionality, which says the most important thing about you is the number of oppressions that you can multiply about yourself. And then however many you have, yeah. that grants you authority to be heard and to speak to any it's a issue. victimization narrative. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, we as people made in the image of God, we are united. There, there's a a oneness in the human race. It doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter what historical era you have lived in. We are all creatures made in the image of God. So that's one thing where critical race theory tries to separate humanity based upon ethnicity, ethnicities that is uh, contrary to the Bible. Secondly, not only are we made in the image of God, but every person is rebellious against God. And so sin has come in and corrupted all of us. We're image bearers who are also sinners. And that's true of everyone. Nobody gets a pass. Uh, nobody gets heaped on because of ethnicity or historical era. We're all one in creatures made in God's image. We're all one. We're united in sin. So wait and a second. You don't think original sin is whiteness? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It, 
it's crazy. You got to rewrite the Bible to buy into this nonsense. And then the third thing for Christians is, okay, what happens to us when we, as image bearers who've rebelled against our creator, are redeemed, when we're born again, when we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. Well, now by grace, everyone who is in Christ is one. We're united. There's no, neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. Well, critical race theory says, ah, not so fast. Yeah. And the most important thing about you is your race. Yeah. And I've, I've read now from, again, men that I trusted, friends. Ten years ago, I read in recent, last year, uh, one black man, pastor, say the most significant thing about me is my blackness. Mm. Don't come at me with Christianity and then put my blackness on the, the back burner. The most significant thing about me is my blackness. Yeah. And I think, how do you how do you keep the gospel whenever you have that mentality? I don't think you can. I think he's playing mind games mm -hmm. in, the, in attempting to do so. In one of the largest churches in America, and you may even know what I'm speaking of, it's one of the top 10 largest churches in America. One of the staff pastors, one of the campus pastors said, it's a black man, and he said, when I think about white people, I just want to torch them. Um, yeah. and, uh, are you familiar with that quote? Yeah, I'm familiar with that. And, and this is coming from uh, a movement from a, um, a pastor who has been widely respected as a biblical exegete, a man who is faithful to the Scripture, and even some of the things that he has said personally outside of his staff, which, quite frankly, if I had said the opposite of that about a black person, I should have been and would have been fired in any, past, in any right. pastoral role I had been in. Uh, and, I, and they would have had av absolute cause to do so. Um, Nonetheless, um, I, I do want to ask one more question about uh, about the documentary, because you, I think, intentionally uh, combine two things in the documentary. It starts with kind of some of the, uh, the discussions about complementarianism, egalitarianism, and then it moves to critical race theory toward the end of the documentary and spends the rest of the time talking about that. Now, I think that um, is brilliant. I think it's important to tie those two together because I, I do not think that they are just concurrent streams that happen to be flowing together at the same time where we have uh, radical feminism in the culture talking about my body, my choice, neglecting the fact that it's not your body and your body, it's a baby. Um, and then you have critical race theory or critical theory also uh, at the same time kind of espousing cultural Marxist ideas. It's interesting to me that you can trace both of those ideas back to actually Karl Marx. So I don't think they're just two concurrent streams. I think they're definitely from the same mainstream from the same they may be tributaries from that same stream um so they definitely seem connected to me so why did you feel the ne necessity of uh of connecting kind of the discussion about complementarianism with the co conversation about critical race theory yeah well you're exactly right they do come from the same uh evil root yeah. and i would add a third to that that we didn't really elaborate but we did touch on and that is the the whole uh uh, sexual revolution or, or gender confusion yeah. that's going on in our day. So you've got all of it and they're wed together. And if you want to see how they're wed to get wed together, go get on the Wayback machine and look at the black lives matter website before they scrubbed it yep. because on there, they said, you cannot be uh, an ally with us. You are not 
serious and anti-racism unless you are for women doing everything in the world and for LGBTQ. Queer affirming. We are against the nuclear family. Yep. I mean, this is on the Black Lives Matter, uh, their, their calling card page at the very beginning. So all of these things come from godlessness of an anti-God ideology from a worldview that factors out God. And this is the thing that I don't think Christians consider critically enough. And even conservative Christians, I've been hammering this as hard as I can for the last year and a half, two years that the most important verse in all the Bible is Genesis 1-1. We have forgotten. This is God's world. It's his rules, and we are here for him. And so he tells us what is real, what's not real, what's right, what's wrong. He tells us what's good, what's bad, what's beautiful, what's ugly. God sets the rules, and he does that in the world. He does that in family. He does that in the church. He does that for me individually. And so this whole idea of my body, my choice, uh, no, not really. Your body, God's choice. You're a creature made in the image of God, whether you believe in God or not, that's true. Family, we we can decide how we want to do family or what constitute a family. Well, no, you can't. God's the one that created the family. Church, we can do church anyway. No, you can't. State, no, no, you can't. You can't, you know, I mean, the state leaders are deacons of God, according to Romans 13. And we just, we have assumed it, but in our assuming it, we've lost it. And so I think one of the most profound things that pastors can do, that churches can do, is go back and just reiterate Genesis 1. Look at, well, this really did come from God. We are here for for Him, by Him. And if you don't get that straight, you're not going to come out right. I'm I'm curious. I th- I'm curious about this too. Like, do you think, and maybe this is a selfish question because I'm writing a book right now, and in the first chapter I go over the seeker sensitive movement. So maybe this is just a question for me, but um, but I think it's interesting to think about. Do you think the thing that has made us susceptible to worldly ideologies that are contrary to Scripture has something to do with the seeker sensitive movement? Well, I think that that this is like the seeker sensitive movement 2.0 or 3.0. Hmm. You know, it depends on whether or not uh, you you want to put the emergent church in there. You know, because I, I think it's all a part of the same cloth. Yeah, this comes out of this same misapprehension, lack of rigorous appreciation for what God actually has said. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, it's not really different than Genesis three. It's the same thing. Mm, it just is taking on new, uh, you know, new terminology. Yeah, that's great. All right, so I'm I'm curious around the same idea of complementarianism, egalitarianism. Have you listened to or heard of uh, a new podcast that's number one in faith and spirituality uh, by Christianity Today called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill"? You know, I haven't. I haven't listened to a single episode, but I've heard about it. Yeah. I've talked to people who listen to it. Yeah, essentially, they are making the same claim that many people in your documentary are making that complementarianism leads to the abuse of women. Um, and I almost feel like I just want to I, I, I want to explain kind of crudely that complementarianism is the idea that women and men are distinctly different, made different intentionally by God and another Genesis reality. Um, but they complement each other. 
and that there is a role for a man in a house and a role for a woman in a house. And there's a lot of people who, if we want to give what we've been talking about throughout a name, we can call it the woke movement. There's a lot of people in the woke movement who absolutely object to the idea of complementarianism because it suggests that men and women may actually be not only biologically different, hashtag science, uh, but also um, different in multiple ways um, because of the way in which they were created. But, but essentially, so much of the stream that runs through this documentary is, or sorry, this uh, long-form podcast is that, um, which sound, which basically sounds, listens to like a documentary, is is the idea that complementarianism is leading us to authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, there's so much wrong with that. I mean, uh, I think Al Mohler made the point in our documentary, what about Harvey Weinstein? You know, I mean, yeah. he's no complementarian. What about Bill Clinton? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you can accuse Bill Clinton of being a complementarian and look what he's done to women. So it, it it's just the, the premise is wrong. It's a narrative. It's a narrative that they hope to promote because they have an agenda that they want to see fulfilled. So I reject it on its face. And I say, let's look at the data. Yeah. Let's look at the data where women are being abused or where heavy-handed authoritarianism arises that results in people being uh, taken, uh, um, treated uh, disadvantageously in sinful ways, there's not true complementarianism mm -hmm. because true complementarianism sees men as being men created by God to be men. And that's one of the concerns I have about some of the things going on in the SBC is we have these men claiming that they knew about sex abuse for a year or two years and did nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, then turn in your man card, much less your Christianity card. Yep. I mean, how do you stand by and see a woman being abused, children being abused and say, oh gosh, you know, these are these bad people, these bad complementarians did that. And I just need now to tell you about it. Well, you're a joke. Yeah. I mean, there's yep. something bad wrong with you if you can sit by and let that happen on your watch. That is not what God's created men to be. And the measure of a man is not a woman. And the measure of a woman is not a man. And so whenever you tell a woman that she's being oppressed because she can't do everything a man can do, uh, you're just, you're part of the oppression. Mm -hmm. You're setting her up for something that is an impossibility because God didn't create her to be him. Yeah, And it's just wrong-headed. And I'm just... I, I want to circle back to this because I still, whenever we say these things, I just ask myself this question, how are these things working? Like, how are they, how are these ideas, these non-biblical sentiments um, that we're hearing in the culture so effective that they are deceiving the church? Um, and I, 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 I want to ask the question if you think there is innocence or malevolence behind this stuff. And again, I don't want to try to ascribe motive, but I want to be honest about this stuff. So I believe Marxism is a parasitic idea, um, and I think it was Michel Foucault who really um, kind of took Marxism in, a, in another path and and, and essentially, um, oh, it's definitely the the Frankfurt School for sure. Uh, that some of these guys just essentially said that we need to parasitize culture. That we need to take what we can from culture and uh, use the master's tools, as it were. We need to use culture to fight against the culture to create the culture that we want. And so, there. I think that the reason some of these ideas are so effective is that they're parasitizing Christian compassion. And the bleeding heart of Christians who 
knows that for maybe maybe for years, rightly so, we've been labeled as judgmental or um, and that we have an obligation to love clearly from Scripture, to love our enemy, to turn the other cheek, um, so on and so forth. And it's parasitizing this compassion that Christians have an indebtedness to and using it against us. And it's causing even people who you would think were stalwart generals of the faith, very strong men of God, preachers, pastors of, of well-known churches, to um, to even give in to these ideologies. So it's definitely alluring, and it's a reminder to me that we need to not fall for things at face value, but we need to always search for what is underneath everything. I think the vast majority of people probably fall into the innocent category. I think that they um, have... A bleeding heart. They have a good, you know, good uh, demeanor. They want to be kind. They want to be sympathetic to others. They they want to be an ally, um, and therefore they're accepting the bribery that's being extorted on on us as Christians to say, "Hey, if you're a good Christian, not a bigot, not unloving." You will call me by any pronoun that I see fit, or and and then in doing so, Christians are they don't realize because they want to be kind to other people. They're they're absolutely accepting a non biblical ideology. Um, but then there's also something that keeps me wondering about malevolence. Um, is there a group or groups of people culturally, maybe within the church, who really believe that the best way forward for Christians is to absolutely overthrow the existing conditions in Christianity today and put in its place godless, unbiblical Marxism. So I'm curious, I know you've probably thought a lot about this and probably been bothered by it in terms of people who you love and are close to you and people you've seen succumb to kind of some of these alluring ideas. Um, what, what do you think as far as where we're at as a culture and what's behind these things? Is it, is it innocence or malevolence? Yeah, it's both. I mean, I think you're exactly right. There are people who have been taken captive uh, by the devil to do his will. And there are some who are thinking that they're honoring God when in reality they're, they're working against the very... Uh, things that God's word has taught us, which again, if we just read our Bible with both eyes open, Jesus said that would happen. You know, yeah. People in prison thinking that they're serving God doing it. And, and so these are these things shouldn't shock us, but they do because we've had it so good for so long. God's been so kind to us. Sometimes people accuse me of being a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I am a conspiracy, not theorist. I'm a conspiracy realist yeah. because the devil is a conspirator and he always has been. And if you factor out the devil and try to explain what's going on, well, then you're just going to be chasing your tail. Mm -hmm. But there really is a devil. He really does have demons. We do have sin within us. We do have the world outside of us trying to press us into its mold. And so to, to think that we can somehow escape the battles that inevitably come with that kind of enemy force aligned against us is naive at best. Yeah, and I want to I want to say this real quick because too, I think the devil is. I don't know if you're familiar with the term Mott and Bailey, uh, but this is yep. something that I actually got from uh, Michael O'Fallon and uh, James Lindsay, um, or started to delve into a little bit more. But the devil, not just people, but the devil, 
is the master of the Mott and Bailey. And for my audience, just real quick, the Mott is um, the the place where it was um, a wide open field, and the Bailey is the castle where it's impregnable. And so um, what people are doing in the culture today with some of these ideas, you think Black Lives Matter and police brutality. So, like, they make this this comment about, like, well, if Black Lives Matter, then we must speak out against police brutality. And you're like, well, yeah, if you're a Christian, for sure. But then as you start to dig into some of their ideologies, like queer affirming and the destruction of the nuclear family, and then even the idea that's kind of come out of some of the Black Lives Matter movement, the defund the police movement, and then you realize most black people don't want the police defunded. And in fact, the worst thing that you could possibly do for black communities is to defund the police. And then you start asking questions like this, then they then those same people retreat to the Bailey and try to build up an impregnable wall in front of you and say, well, if you're not a racist, you'll absolutely buy into what we're saying. And then most people back away from that extortion and just say, well, no, God, I'm not a, I'm not a racist. God, I can't be considered a racist. Please don't call me a racist. And, and then they run away from that. I mean, this is the devil in his finest because the Bible says that he parades around as an angel of light. And, that, and even when you look at Genesis, the devil isn't just out and out like debauchery with his temptation to Eve. He's saying, well, did God actually say this? And wouldn't it be good if we did this? And so it's there's this alluring nature to sin that we as Christians have to become aware of and have to become wise to if we're going to be discerning Christians, especially in this age. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I do think there is a spiritual naivety that exists too far, too wide in Christians today, uh, especially with le- within the conceptions we have of leadership. I mean, as you've mentioned a couple of times now, you know, we've got Christian leaders that 10 years ago, we all just trusted and we said, this is awesome. You know, these men are trustworthy. I mean, that's the way I was. Yeah. Up until 2016, 2017, people are telling me all this stuff's going on in culture. You got to wake up and look at it. I'm thinking, are you serious? If this is true, you know, Al Mohler is going to be dealing with this. He lives for this stuff. 100%. And, you, you know, you just, you trusted these different respected men and uh, felt like they could never fail. They could never not do what they've done so well for so many years. And again, biblical realism will shatter that naivety because you've got at Caesarea Philippi, Peter saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus saying, man, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That came from my father in heaven. And you're Peter on this rock. I'm going to build my church. And then what happens five minutes later? Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'll be abused. I'll be crucified. And Peter says, not so, Lord. And what does Jesus reveal in that moment? Get behind me, Satan. Now he's talking to Peter. And so if you'd have been there with a video camera, you wouldn't have seen the devil. But Jesus is telling us this is demonic in Peter's mind. This is demonic. And then in Acts 20, you've got elders at Ephesus meeting with Paul at Miletus. And Paul most likely appointed those very men to the eldership of that church. And he's telling them, you got to watch your life. You got to watch your doctrine. You got to shepherd the flock. And then he says, from among your own number, there will arise those who teach perverse things, leading many disciples astray. Yeah. Okay. This, these are elders appointed by an apostle. So why should we think that our leaders are immune to those possibilities. They're not, we are not, which is why we must always come back to the word. We've got to take the Bible seriously and measure everything by the Bible. 
one of the things that helped me tremendously to begin to gain clarity is to put bags over all the faces of these men I'd trusted for so many years and just start listening to what they said, reading what they wrote, watching what they do. And then you pull the bag up and think, whoa, I never would have expected it from him. But nevertheless, here's the evidence. Mm-hmm. And the evidence suggests I, th- this is not the guy we used to trust. I can't trust him anymore because here's where he is. I don't care what he's been saying. I don't care what he would like for us to believe about himself. These are the facts on the ground. Yeah. And that's yeah. the way Christians are going to have to think if we're going to get through this mess and uh, and take a stand that will be helpful for the generations following us. Yeah, I've been thinking um, two things are going to help us in the midst of everything that we're dealing with. A re-evaluation of the Imago Dei and a reevaluation of original sin, because so much of the naivete is fueled by a misunderstanding of human nature. Like, we need to go back. It may sound depressing, but it's a, a life-giving reality to really understand this, because it helps you lean upon God. We need to go back to the understanding that the human heart is an idol factory, that we are susceptible and given to every wind of doctrine if we're not careful, and uh, to false and horrible, defeating damnable ideologies. And if we come to information with that kind of lens, it helps us not fall victim to some of the emotionally compelling arguments that we're hearing in the culture right now. So with that being said, um, you said something about leadership. So I do want to ask you two last questions because you've been pretty vocal about this and I appreciate your vocalness with it. So, um, just recently, I think it was probably yesterday, you you tweeted about Russell Moore and some leaked letters that has to do with some of the sexual abuse scandals that were taking place. So I read an article. I was just wondering if you can shine a little bit of light as to what actually took place with those letters. And for those who don't know, Russell Moore, uh, Russell Moore was the leader of the SBC for a while, wasn't he? Well, of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of okay, the, the ERLC. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know... <laughs> I have a podcast called The Sword and the Trowel, and uh, we actually deal with that on the episode this week. And I've written on it, too. If you want to go to founders.org and Google or, or search through that website, you can find things where I've said about this more in detail. But Russell Moore resigned from his leadership of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is obviously by its title, the ethical branch and arm of the SBC. He resigned in May of this year, May 2021. But before he went out, uh, he, he went out with a, a bang, I guess slightly after he resigned, there was a letter that was leaked to the press that he wrote in February of 2020. So what is that, 15, 16 months prior mm-hmm. to our annual convention was meeting in Nashville in June of 2021. So just before the annual meeting, this leaked letter that Russell wrote to the officers of the trustees of the ERLC in February 2020 gets made known publicly. In this letter, he uses language about being a, being uh, forced to uh, into a culture in the executive committee of the SBC where women are being raped and children are being ripped to shreds. And all of this has been going on and I can't take it anymore and psychological terrorism is being used against me. February 2020, he writes all these words about what has been going on for some time before. And it doesn't, that email doesn't get distributed to all of the trustees 
on the board of the ERLC, but only the president, David Prince, and maybe the other officers. And uh, when it comes public in June, one of the trustees, John Whitehead, who's a Harvard-trained lawyer who sits on the board of trustees for the ERLC, asked David Prince, who's a professor at Southern Seminary and the chairman of the board of trustees, why didn't this come to all of the trustees when Russell wrote it in February 2020? Why are we having to find out about it being leaked to the press? And David told him, well, you know, Russell was just hot-headed, and he wrote that in a moment of passion, and, and it was over, and he just put his head down and kept working. Well, as John, you know, a, a lawyer, he says, no, 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 man, we have a fiduciary responsibility as trustees. If these things were going on, then Russell basically is admitting to standing by doing nothing when culture is being created by the executive committee of the SBC, where women are being raped and children are being ripped to shreds. Mm -hmm. Now, when I when I read Russell's leaked letter, and I've known Russell for 25 years, I, I just. I thought, how could you be a Christian man and say this has been going on and you've been silenced by it, that, that you weren't allowed to speak about it? I don't care what it cost you. I don't, I don't care what the odds are. If that's going on, God kill me before he lets me stand by and just say, well, because I'm being psychologically terrorized, I can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Pick up the phone and call the police. I mean, this is nonsense. He's talking about criminal activity. Yep. And yet. He doesn't do a thing about it from the time he writes about it in February 2020 to the time that it's leaked in June of 2021. Now, John Whitehead, the trustee, the lawyer, he has recently sent a long document outlining all of this with emails, with attachments for uh, verification, all, all the evidence to this task force that has been formed to look into the executive committee's cover up of sexual abuse and as well as to the executive committee itself, he's released it. He said, look, everybody needs to know about this. Yeah. Well, everybody could have known about it back in June if uh, Baptist Press had had enough courage or concern to even pick up the story. But they, they to this day, have not said word one about it, which, you know, you got to ask the question, why not? What are they covering up? Or why, why, why is it this a major scandal? This is horrific that the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission would admit to knowing about a culture of where women are being raped and children are being ripped to shreds, and he didn't say a word about it. So why didn't he? That's my big question. You got well. Here's what I think: is that it doesn't exist. Yeah, I don't think there is such a culture, and yet that leaked letter became the basis for what happened at the SBC in Nashville in 2021. And Mike Stone, who was one of the candidates for president against Ed Litton was defeated on the second ballot. And I had many people tell me, well, you know, with all the scandal surrounding the executive committee, all these accusations of covering up sex abuse, we couldn't vote for him because Mike was on the executive committee. It's bogus. Yeah. It, it was a political hack job. And I think Russ Moore, I, I just think he's not telling the truth. If he's telling the truth, he ought to name names. He ought to call the police. Yep. And if you don't name names and call the police, th there's something deviant about you if what you're saying happened actually happened yeah i don't yeah. go any other way around that well i think i think i can't help but wonder if it's not the former so let's talk just lastly about uh this ed linton's election so you've been kind of vocal about that as well online so what are your thoughts about um his presidency and where you think 
resolutions like Resolution 9, will uh, how things will evolve under the leadership of Lenin? Do you feel like there's going to be more progressive ideology espoused with him as the head of the SBC, or do you feel like there's going to be some conservative influence on the uh, on the and the leadership of the SBC? No, no, I think it's this is uh, Ed Litton is J, J D Greer 2.0. J D Greer was the immediate past president of the SBC, yep. and you know, I guess it's a little bit ironic, but I mean, he he actually copied J D sermons. We don't know how many. We know of at least twelve to fifteen that came to light, and as they began to come to light, then they scrubbed their website. I think Newsweek or I think it was a magazine that said over 140 sermons suddenly disappeared mm-hmm. uh, from Ed Litton's website, his church's website. I mean, Ed, you can just Google it. It's on YouTube where they've taken what Ed said, what J.D. said in earlier sermons, and it's word for word down to the same jokes, down to the same personal illustrations. You know, J.D., I remember when I was taking driver's ed and the teacher did this, Ed Litton preaching the same sermon. I remember when I was in driver's ed and the teacher did this. I mean, it's atrocious. It's dishonest. It's immoral. Mm -hmm. And so... I, when I first saw the first evidence of the of one sermon, somebody sent it to me, I wrote Ed privately. I said, brother, you know, please get some men that you trust, that you love, that, that know you, that will speak honestly to you and just help them evaluate. I don't know. Maybe there's an explanation. I don't understand. But this looks really bad. Just get some some trusted, godly men and just sort through this. Now, he doesn't know me. I don't know him. So he didn't have any obligation to respond to me. But he's he's just doubled down at every point. You know, well, there's one or two occasions, anonymous critics. They're not anonymous, and it's more than one or two occasions. You know, one one occasion when him and his wife are preaching together, which is a whole nother problem, she plagiarizes Tim Keller along with him. I mean, that you, it's a, and this happened like 10 years ago. So this is not a one-off deal. It's not a recent deal. This is a pattern in the man's life. So I, I just don't have any respect for him. I, I grieve over him. I wish his elders would care enough for his soul to help him. But, uh, you know, here we are. He's the president of the SBC. And if a man doesn't have any more integrity than to do that and then to double down on, I haven't done anything wrong, you know, I've done, I, may, I wasn't as wise as I should be, yeah. maybe made a couple of mistakes a couple of times. If that's, if that's his ethical compass, I don't have any confidence that we're going to see things go in good directions. Yeah, well, the church really does mimic the culture sometimes, unfortunately, because uh, we have a president who's a plagiarist, and now we have a president of the SBC who's a plagiarist. So. I know, I know. All right, so um, we'll have to keep on fighting that battle, because I do believe that that's the one thing that uh, the Lord is calling me to do with this podcast, is to try to help cool. kind of create, get the church back to the place. This is Genesis again is uh, get the church back to the place where it's creating culture rather than just mimicking the culture. Pastors my age and a little bit younger have have just been spoon-fed the uh, the idea of relevance until we understand that that is the mode of operation for planting a church or building a church in this modern era and that church growth at all costs. Um, mm-hmm. And we're starting to see how that's that's impacting the church, and we've we've got to change that ship around. Um, and the way that we do that is we quit mimicking the culture and we start creating culture based upon the seed of the Word of God, and we plant that wherever we can. Uh, now, you're doing that with your brand new book, Strong and Courageous. So tell us just a little bit, just briefly about that, because I know you gotta, you got to run here, but I don't, I don't want to miss an opportunity to put great life-giving resources in people's hands. So Strong and Courageous is available now, correct? That's right. It's available at founders.org or Amazon or and it's um, it's a book that was really born 
out of what's been going on in the last two or three years as founders has tried to address these things. And in that book, what we try to look at is the rise of the new religion in America and how Christians need to stand firm against it by going back to Genesis 1-1, by thinking critically and assessing what's happening and not just being driven along, not let somebody else define what love is for you or what Mm -hmm. justice is, but looking at what the Bible says about these things and being genuinely loving, genuinely just, and trying to to actually stand against the onslaught that's coming against us in the name of a religion. And and it's a different religion. It's not biblical Christianity. So that's why we did that. We've also started the Institute of Public Theology, Mm -hmm. where we're trying to train those that are serious about wanting to understand how to take the Bible into our culture, both pastors, church leaders, uh, you know, it's it's a kind. I love this institute because we're not offering any degrees. We're not pretending any credentials, but we've got the best teachers on earth, in my estimation. Bodie Balkum, myself, Tom Nettles. We're founding faculty members of this institute. We got Mark Coppinger teaching ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Carl Truman come. Our, our Mark Coppinger teaching philosophy. We got Carl Truman coming in to teach ethics. We we've got just men of high caliber, high quality to teach on critical issues that if folks are willing to, to take it seriously, do the work, do the reading, they can get a phenomenal education to help them in the day in which we live right now and what we're facing. So these kind of resources founders have been producing for years, and uh, we're happy to make them available to churches, church leaders, and any, especially anything we can do to help pastors. We just love to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all the great work that you're doing. I'm going to put all of those links to go to founders to access the book and then the Institute for Public Theology as well so that people can access all of that stuff down in the show notes and in the uh, in the description part of, of this video. So uh, guys, go out there and get as many of those resources as you possibly can and follow along with with uh, what what's going on in the culture, but more importantly, follow along with what God has said in his word. Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Great, my joy. All right, everybody, thanks for watching. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.